All right. All right, it's good to see you. Make yourself comfortable. And welcome to Legacy. Family trees, they're interesting. Good morning. <laughs> hey, if you brought a Bible with you, we're going to be looking in John. So turn to John 17, or if you have an app, use that. It will be up on the screen as well. This is the passage that's going to do the majority of the heavy lifting for us today. It's a fascinating passage. It's probably, it's perhaps one of my favorite in the entire Bible. It is what they call the high priestly prayer. Um, this is the passage that we studied the night that I became a Christian many, many, many moons ago. And uh, just to kind of stick this on a map for you, this prayer that we're about to watch Jesus pray, this prayer occurred in likely the upper room, okay? So they just finished what we'd been reading. The upper room discourse is back and forth with the disciples. He is about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So whether he prays this on the way or whether he's still in the room, we don't know. But in my opinion, I, I, I think this is probably one of the coolest and most important prayers prayed on the face of this planet. Um, so I'm excited to spend some time in it. This is what it says to us, John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning the upper room discourse they'd been going through, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, have whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now I am praying for them. This is interesting. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's a fascinating passage. I mean, it's, it's a, to me, it's a weighty passage. It's interesting, one of the things we talk around our dinner table about is how our family tree is starting to look as a family. Lineage research is big business right now. I know you see all of the commercials. You could actually send your DNA, and they could probably tell you what part of the world you come from. I think it's in, it just innately intriguing to people to know where they came from. Maybe they sense it gives them sort of, some sort of definition of who they are today. And we actually live in a generation where we don't have to hire private investigators to fill in our family tree. That's how it used to be done, by the way. So I have some old family data from way back in the day, and it's because my grandparents hired a private investigator to do all the research, but now you can just go to whatever.com and have it done in about an afternoon. It's kind of a hobby for me and my son. We love this stuff a lot. It's interesting, I was talking about this just yesterday, but one day, 24 hours before we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, I mean, the truck is being loaded. Um, I had like a free trial to Ancestry.com or whatever.com, and I traced our bloodline, the Thomas name, all the way back to where it first started in the United States of America after it came from overseas. You know where my family started was in Sevier County. Did not know that. It was, new, it was new information for me. I've always felt like that was some sort of a confirmation that we were coming home, that we were coming to the right place, and that we could live and die here and, and come full circle. There's even a Thomas Cemetery in Sevier County right at the foothills of the Smokies filled with my ancestors. And if you go there, there will be tombstones with the Thomas name on them that is actually older than the city of Knoxville has even been settled. One day I hope to be buried in that same cemetery. It's intriguing. And as interesting as all of that is to me, it's not really bringing definition to who I am today. You know? I mean, I've got some crazy members of the family tree, some real Dr. Phil situations that are far back on some distant branches. That doesn't hurt me any more than some real notable characters have helped me. I'll tell you what is interesting to me is a different lineage. The one, the one where a spiritual baton has been passed from generation to generation to generation in the work of the gospel. The gospel, the good news of what God has done for mankind through the life, death, and new life of Jesus Christ. Now that's a heritage and that's a family tree I'd love to see. How that's all worked its way out. I think that does bring definition to who I am. 
You know, from the best research I could find from modern anthropologists, a generation is considered to be between 20 and 27 years, depending on which one you look at and believe. That's about the average. What this means is, is mathematically, there is somewhere between 75 and 100, give or take, 75 or 100 generations between newborns now and Jesus Christ. That's it. It didn't seem like very many whenever I did the research. I want you to consider this for a moment. If you're a Christian here, if you are a lover of Jesus, and you call him your father, that means that someone, somewhere, whether it was a dad, an uncle, a youth pastor, someone on TV, maybe even someone in this room, someone expressed the gospel to you, told you about Jesus, and therefore they were a missionary. They were on God's mission to mankind, and they told you. And whenever you heard it from whoever it came from, Whenever you heard it, your heart was active to receive it. You were able to trust it. Earlier you couldn't, now all of a sudden you could. Earlier sin didn't make much sense to you, it wasn't that big of a deal. Now you are grieved by the sin and you understand what God has done with arms wide open instead of arms straight out. It's a faith that God has given you as a gift. It's a gift, just a graceful gift. It's not one you deserved, it's not one I deserved, he just gave it to us. And when we heard the news, the good gospel, and we trusted in it with our hearts and put our faith in it, then the Holy Spirit regenerated our life. Turned our heart from stone to flesh. Made it to where we could love and believe, adopting us into a family, out of orphanages into a real family, family we, we shouldn't even be in. Now, this message that came to you and me through a missionary was just one of the spiritual links in a chain. 75, 100 links in a chain between you as a Christian and Jesus Christ. This is interesting. Just consider it. Just dream, just for a little bit. Because this is a heritage I would love to see one day. How I became a Christian, worked its way back all the way to the people in the book of Acts. Consider Jesus teaching openly, people listening and their hearts being quickened to believe and to trust in what he's saying. Then they become Christians, and then they go home and they tell their neighbor, and then that person loves Jesus, and then seven years later, that person tells a family member, and then that person loves Jesus, and it goes from person to person to person, and the technology gets better, the style changes, the language changes, it starts to cross over oceans, all the way till it got to your ears. And it's interesting how it just moved from person to person. I would love to see that. I like how Jesus says this in John 3. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it not. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just moving fast, spreading quickly. And then it gets to you. Of course, by the time I see this in heaven, I'm hoping to see a lot of branches that have come from my ministry where God has given me the, the honor and the opportunity to lead others to Jesus, and hopefully that whole thing is moving on and on. Maybe even today there would be some in here that would join the family tree of Jesus Christ. Maybe even today. That would be super cool, right? So in today's passage, we see something very unique. We see Jesus praying for his 11 closest disciples, okay? And and those that they would reach, the branches on the growing family tree. We see in verse nine, I am praying for them. And then later on in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. 
That's you. He's praying for you, personally, for you. Let that sink. He had you in mind. He's praying for this spiritual family tree that's starting from him, going through Acts, going from continent to continent, and landing with you. He's praying for us. And he's praying in such a way that others are hearing him on purpose. He's praying out loud. He wants the disciples to hear him. He's done this from time to time. We actually see this listed out in the very first verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, which means I hadn't even left the room yet. He's not retreated on a mountain. It's just right there. He's got a full audience, and he just starts praying. He breaks out into a prayer. He did this with Lazarus, too. Some of you can think back to whenever we taught the story of Lazarus in the same book of John. Jesus said, I said this, to God he's praying, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Why is he doing this? Why does Jesus pray openly for those close around him to hear? The answer is because it's a kindness. That's how much he loves us. Don't you like it when people pray for you and you're in their presence? They say your name, it comes out of their lips, and you feel a sense of being considered, I guess, being understood, being loved, being valued. It's a kindness. This is a grace of Jesus to pray openly for the people around him, and he's praying for you and me today. Not just him, he's praying for you and me. Right here in 2017 in this room. This is encouraging. You know, this text is the only one in this entire series of John, the series that we call Hero. It's the only one that we're doubling down on and spending two weeks on this text. By the time we finish this book, we would have hit 47 sermons inside the book of John. It's the longest series we've ever done. That's a lot, right? Some of you are like, well, what number are we on, like 16? It feels like we've been here forever. We're not. Right after Easter, it will end. We will be done. Um, And I've enjoyed it. It's been a great book. But this is the only passage that we're doubling down on because Jesus is praying for our faithfulness as a church in two crucial key areas, mission and community. You can start to see some of the nuances and the drippings of that come through the prayer. Mission and community. Now, this is important for us as a church. This is kind of the bedrock on which legacy is built. It's it's our only one-two punch combination. Being on mission to a city out of our love and enjoyment of Jesus as a tightly wound community, close, doing life on life together. That's why we always say things like we are a people by the gospel, for the gospel. That's kind of just who we are. You know, me and Chris, we just got here from a pastoral retreat we've been at for the last few days. We just leaked in right before the service started. And one of the things in the exercises that we were brought through was to recount in detail our church's history, all the way back to Tampa, Florida, when me and Kevin were scrawling out ideas on bar napkins, what this could look like all the way to today. And you know the thing that kept rising to the top, the thing that was a burning passion in all of your pastors, the thing that we really are excited about doing in the future? Mission as community. That's who we are. So when I see a passage like this, it screams for us to pay attention to it. So what I'd like to do today is look at the heart of a missionary. Not the tactics. Not the hands-on things. We have classes for that. We could teach on that all day long. We just finished a class called Missional Living. It's a four-week class. Could have easily made it a ten-week class. I love that stuff. But I want to look at the heart of a missionary, Because when people fail or feel like a failure as a missionary to the city, it's not because they're unskilled. It's just not. It's because something's gone wrong in their heart. 
I know plenty of unskilled, unlearned, unread missionaries that are doing an incredible job. In fact, testimony of that is the book of Acts. They didn't go to 16 Acts 29 conferences and, and get all the big podcasts before they started the church. They had a heart that belonged in the chest of a missionary. And that's what I would like to look at today. Because all Christians, all Christians, all Christians are missionaries. It's a key identity we have. We're adopted, we're loved ones, we're sons, we're daughters, we're missionaries. It's a key identity for who we are. Jesus even says later on when we get to John 20, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, that's what the word missionary is gonna mean for us, sent me, so I am sending you. But now when you and me, when we look in the mirror, we don't see missionary, do we? We see worker, husband, we see wife, brother, student. We have identities, but missionary is just never one of them. And if we do actually get to the place where we say, yeah, missionary, we don't ever really high-five ourselves because we're doing a great job and we're crushing it on the mission field. We feel like we're a miserable failure or we're just insecure about it. We don't even really want to talk about it. That's typically where we're at. So, again, I think... What I'd like to focus on today is the fact that you can have great joy and great satisfaction. Great joy and great satisfaction and great security in being a missionary to this area, to your city. Big idea of this passage is that Jesus had great joy in being faithful to God's great commission. He had great joy in that, and now he's praying that you would have the same. He had great joy and being on God's mission for mankind. And now he's praying for you and me to have the exact same one. You see, it's even more difficult for us to think of Jesus as a missionary, but he was the prima missionary. He was the first. Consider he crossed. He left a home, a comfortable home. He left a comfortable home and crossed a gigantic gap, ending in a place that would be aggressive to him, connecting to culture, calling sin, sin, developing relationships, bringing life, sacrificing, bringing the gospel at a great cost to him, at a great benefit to everybody else. That's how he was sent. That's how we're sent. He says, as I am sent, that's how I'm sending you. And now he's interceding for us that this would actually happen. This is his prayer. This is him standing in the gap for you and me. You know, just a quick note when it comes to the Great Commission. Because I hear this sometimes when people banter back and forth or even other teachers teach this. The Great Commission is not something that we get done. Right? It's God's Great Commission. He does it. We're invited into it. But it's his mission. We're not blowing up and expanding the kingdom. We're not building the kingdom. We're invited into the process where God is building his own kingdom. It sounds like maybe nerdy semantics, but it is important for us to know that. I like to use the word custodian. I feel like I'm more of a custodian in God's great commission. I'm not the one really putting the bricks together and building something. I just get to kind of steward and manage and pick up the pieces of the whirlwind that the Holy Spirit is when he moves through and changes lives. He's building his kingdom. I'm just a part of it. I get to be a part of it. And this seems easy enough when we say it out loud, but by and large, being a missionary is something that we feel super insecure about. Just invited into something where someone else does all the work? Why would we be insecure about that? But we are. And Jesus did not die on a cross and vanquish death and remove sin to build a church full of grumpy and disjointed missionaries, but a church full of people that loved, enjoyed, 
and worshiped as missionaries, right? And so when we tell God's story and we preach the good news and we do not enjoy that story ourselves, then we're not really on God's mission. We're on our own mission. When we're faking it as we tell people how great God is, but we don't really believe it in our heart, we're not on his mission. We're trying to secure something for ourselves. That's our mission. Maybe we think we're going to make God happier. Maybe if we're a good missionary, it'll cancel out past sins that we've committed, make us more clean in his eyes. This is all for our purposes. It's all for our kingdom. I have immediate flashbacks. I even typed this down. When I finished putting a period on that sentence, I had a flashback to the very first class I ever took as a Christian. Right? Evangelism explosion. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of, of EE, as we like to call it. So a few of you, okay. If you've never heard of it, evangelism explosion, is, it's been around since Moses. It's an evangelism training program. I think James Kennedy invented it way back in the day, and I still think it's being done in a lot of places. I think it's been revamped several times. It was the first time I ever had to memorize scripture, and I needed to get it down because I was about to head to the sprawling malls of the suburbs and walk up on unsuspecting people and tell them the gospel, but I was just like this the whole time. I wasn't enjoying one second of it, you know? I wasn't. I, you, would, you would have thought by watching from afar that I was telling a guy he had a disease or something. That's the, that was the look on my face. Where I was about to ask him for a subscription or something. That's how I felt. That's how it looked. I didn't enjoy it. I was faking it, right? So as I said earlier, we were all message carriers that carry a message and then depict what our love for God looks like. And if we just have a distaste for mission, which a lot of us do, if we're honest, or a loathing when it comes to even hearing sermons on mission, then what we're really doing is we don't carry the message out, or as we carry it out and we have this horrible look on our face, we're basically saying God is not good. He's not good. He's not powerful to change. That's why I look just like you, and that's why I don't even want to be doing this. That's what we translate. It's a false portrait. Hear me when I say this. Missionary failure, it is nothing more than a failure to understand what the gospel has done for us. That's missionary failure. It's not that you haven't read the right books or understand your culture. It's just that you have a skewed or incomplete picture on what God has done for you as the prima missionary to you. That's why I'm so glad he's praying for us in this passage, because I need it. I need this prayer. So if we were to focus in a little bit, the how on struggling points to the why on struggling with being a missionary. How we struggle kind of indicates why we struggle. It's the symptom pointing to the disease. And so I'd love to do just a little bit of an autopsy just for a moment, okay? And maybe give you an idea of maybe why you struggle when you look in the mirror or when you're in the cubicles or on the campus or in the neighborhoods talking to people, right? If you were to just imagine a spectrum, right? I didn't put a flashy picture of this on the screen. Just imagine a spectrum. It's a line with two ends, okay? So in the middle of the spectrum would be a healthy missionary. Let's just say it's where I'm at right now. A healthy missionary. This is someone who is in the world, but maybe not of the world. We hear that phrase all the time, and I'm about to speak to it because that's not literally in the Bible just like that anywhere, right? But someone who is in the world, they're otherworldly, but they're also kind of worldly. They understand what's going on. They understand the culture. They're fluent in how gospel 
um, news connects to people, connects to themselves. They know which parts of culture to slap down and reject. They know which parts they can just totally receive. They know which parts of culture need to be redeemed. They're invested. Their hands are dirty because they're in the community doing that. That, that would be right in the middle of the spectrum, right? In but not of. And by the way, I'm not a big fan of that phrase. Where we get that is actually in this passage we're in today. In the 16th verse of John 17, Jesus says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Okay, get it, got it, right? But Jesus was in the world, just like we're in the world. That's why you keep hearing people say, hey, I'm in but not of. But what that smacks of, it reeks of retreat. Like I'm in the world, but I'm, I'm not of the world. I mean, I'm kind of way over here. I like in, not of, but sent into. That is a more biblical view. That's a more doctrinally accurate view of who we are in our identity as missionaries. Not just in, not of. Come on, that's goofy. It's in, not of, but sent into. It's got much more of an aggressive posture to it. And if you were to look out on the ends of our spectrum, our fake spectrum up here, you have missional apostasy on either end. We break it, we bend in one way or the other, but we all bend, I bend. You bend. On one end, we see where we are not otherworldly enough. In other words, we embrace everything the culture sends our way. Everything. We don't stand out. We're indistinguishable. And on the other end, well, we might be too otherworldly. We don't get our hands dirty at all. We're insulated. We're, we are removed. Not anywhere close. And so I have to preach the gospel to myself when I look at a spectrum like that. Because it tells me where my heart has gone wrong. Let's look at one of the ends, where we absorb and blend into culture, where we embrace it. We're, we're not so much otherworldly missionaries. We're more worldly missionaries. We're kind of indistinguishable from the world as a whole. There are many reasons we do this, but I think the big reason that usually stands out for people is that we fear that the world will treat us differently when we act differently. We're, we'll catch static, and we will. I mean, he promises as much here in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, we want mankind to accept us. We talked about this two weeks ago. I mean, we really hammered down on it in detail. You can go back and look at it. I think the name of the sermon is Jesus Brings Pain. You can go back and look at the same sermon series, right? But what happens is, is we know if I don't accept what culture is doing, then that moves me outside of their circle, which makes it look like I'm judging what they're doing. And if I judge what they're doing and I'm I'm saying what they do is wrong, then they get infuriated with me and they throw a temper tantrum and they're upset. I catch their wrath and no one wants that. We'd rather have their acceptance. So vocally, we end up being very quiet in a very loud world, keeping our head down hoping that they don't ask what we really believe about something. That way we won't be tempted to lie or shave the hard edges off. That's that end of the scale. Instead of telling people that their sin is killing them, we just brag about how good God is as if there's no sin in their life at all, right? Because this way they don't throw rocks. We don't want the pain of being associated with Jesus. We just don't want the pain. We want the identity and the approval and the favor that comes from man. What God has given us because of Jesus' work, not good enough. It's not going to be good enough. So for those of you who've been through the classes on gospel fluency or how to change, this would be the lie that God is not glorious. We believe it. God is not glorious. So we have to go about manufacturing our own glory, our own stature, 
because what has been gifted to us is insufficient, and we have to have mankind give us a favorable opinion. So we wear a muzzle. We're silent when we should be vocal. And we say things we, we don't mean, and we don't mean things that we say. We, we're, we're silent at the wrong times. When, whenever we say something, we take all the, all the difficult things out of it. We sanitize our words, and our silence ends up being this application for the world's favor. And if you were to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, it doesn't look any better, right? This is where we retreat and we buffer people and culture out because it's too much work. It's just too much work. I mean, we don't really see the return on investment that we want to see. We never take the gloves off. We never get dirty. We don't know what homeless people smell like. We've never been rejected. I think one of the reasons we do this, I think the primary one, is because the work we put into it never really equals the work we get out of it. In the investment world, they call it the ROI, return on investment. It's just not that good. Consider it this way. If you knew that you knew that you knew because the Holy Spirit told you and a bright neon sign came down right now and said the next 100 people you tell about Jesus will radically get saved, the next 100, and you knew that that was going to happen, we wouldn't even go to lunch before we found 100 people, would we? I mean, those odds, one to one, we might even be strategic with where we go. I mean, that's a dirty thought, but you would all think it eventually before you got to the car. Where am I going to go? Am I going to go to the campus? Am I going downtown? Am I going out to Farragut where all the rich people are? Where am I going to go? Which 100 am I going to tell? What, that's because there's a high ROI. What if it was 50? What if it was 50 out of 100? Well, that, that's still not bad. That's one out of two. I like those odds. I like those odds a lot, right? So I'm still, I'm talking, I'm counting, I'm talking, I'm counting all day. I won't even, I won't, I won't do anything until I've talked to at least 100 people and see 50 radically saved. What if it was 25? You see where I'm going. One out of four? Hey, I will take those odds all day long. What about one? I would do it. I think I would do it. One out of 100? Hear me. We think it's zero, and that's why we don't. The work is too much. I'm not going to get anything back. What is it, like one in a million? Then why even bother? The return is just not impressive. And the investment is way too high. If missions to Knox County or Knox metro area, if it is examined through the lens of the return on investment, you will always feel the fullness of everybody's rejection. You will always feel the fullness of the amount of work that is having to go into it. It will always make you feel small. It will always make you feel ineffective. It will always make you feel insecure, always. But, and this is where I wanna take the turn, okay? But what if, what if Jesus is right here and we could examine mission through the lens of us retelling the same great story that changed us? That what God has done to us, he will legitimately do through us. What if that is the case? Because then all we're doing is we're retelling a good story. My wife will tell you, I'm a giant reminiscer. I love to reminisce. I could do it all day long. It kind of drives her up the wall because reminiscers tend to be hoarders at the same time, right? Because <laughs> there's a memory attached to everything. You can't throw that away. You know, it reminds me of middle school or whatever. But I love to reminisce. I love to tell stories. And, and, and if you've been close to me at all, you will know, I will try to get you to recount a story. Hey, hey, tell me about that one time. That was hilarious. I love that story. Tell it again. Tell it again. And the stories just keep getting better and better and better, don't they? I love to tell stories repeatedly. 
And sometimes the retelling of it reminds me of how good the original moment was. It's easy to do that, isn't it? Even sometimes when you don't feel like telling the story over again. Hey, man, tell that story about that one time. Nah, I don't want to tell that story again. No, no, it's a good story. You need to tell it. (laughs) All right. And you start to kind of roll into it. And before you know it, it's like your favorite time to retell the story. You're all over the place. And everyone's laughing and having a good time. It's fun to retell good stories. Now, reminiscing is just talking about something that's happened in the past. But the gospel is happening right now. It's not just a past event. The good news is that people are still being rescued and wrapped up and drawn into the kingdom of God. Now it's happening. Missionaries, hear me. The story, it's got to be good to us before it's good to anybody else. Else you're faking it. You're reminiscing about something that just wasn't even really that good of a story to begin with to you. Are you following? Many times bad missionaries, they're even worse at understanding the gospel and how it has affected them. Missions work in this city. It's not that it could be enjoyable, it should be enjoyable, or it ought to be enjoyable. It's not something that you should walk out and say, man, I feel real dirty inside because I don't enjoy it. It should provoke the question instead, why do I not enjoy it? Why is it not fascinating to me? Why am I so insecure with it? See, when a church of Jesus lovers enjoy telling the story of God, and God is lifted up, and God is glorified in our lives, then we will make disciples who will do the same. Legacy's goal is not to make a bunch of missionaries. Legacy's goal is not even to make a bunch of missionary disciples. Legacy's goal, as is implicit in all of our value statements, our mission statements, is to build a church where people enjoy Jesus. And then we have worshipful missionary disciples. Not people just doing the work, but people doing the work with a smile on their face. The gospel just sounds a lot better coming through smiling lips. That's what we want. That's what we're hoping to build. Because Jesus, who is our hero, is glorified the most when we are deeply satisfied and most thoroughly satisfied in him. No matter who we're around, no matter who's throwing rocks and who's stomping their feet and having a fit at what we say. So when I look at the gospel story, as pointed out in this passage, it's beautiful. You see Jesus say something you don't catch him saying very often. You might have caught it as we read that. So let's reminisce a little bit. Let's look at this story. Jesus asks to be glorified. That doesn't sound like Jesus, though, does it? That's not like his MO. Typically, we're going to find him stooping or lowering himself or or finding some feet to wash or, or finding some dirty people to be around. We don't really see him vaulting for position. So what's he doing right here, right? It's a fantastic reversal is what's happening. Jesus came to be shamed and lowered, and now he's asking for Jesus to glorify and lift him. It's a reversal, right? It's a fantastic one. I think... When we understand why he said this, I think Jesus will become more clear and more beautiful and more fascinating to us. And my goal is that that makes us a better missionary. Let me, let me just pray it real quick. I'm going to pray for you just for a moment because I really want God to change our hearts in this passage. Father, I just pray that as we go over this and we see how you glorify your son, what that means for us. Father God, that it shows us the beauty of your gospel and your love for us, just in a common statement like that, because God, I want to be a better missionary. 
I don't want to excuse myself from culture, and I don't want to nosedive into it to where I can't even be seen as any different. I want to be a good missionary, but I know my heart needs work, more heart than skill. So help us as we look at this passage. Amen. Okay. The word glorify. He says in this passage, Father, the hour has come, which means it's all coming to a head right now. Right now, it's all going down. Right? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It sounds like they're just throwing the ball back and forth. What glorify means here is to be clothed in splendor. We get that. Just to be lifted up. Right? And he is asking to be restored to the height of glory that he once had before he entered God's mission. So Philippians 2, we start to see the lowering. Um, is this going to be on the screen, 2-7? says this, Jesus, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here he is, he's lowered. Crossed a big gulf, the prima missionary coming, crossing boundaries, right? Being born in the likeness of men, another step down. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see this continual progression of him stooping and lowering himself, and then out of nowhere, he flips the script. And he says, glorify me, that I may glorify you. You see, it's this exact same event, the one that kicks him down, the one that brings all the horror, the one that brings all the shame. It is that event where he is glorified in the fact that he took our sins and he threw them into the waves, never to be seen again. It's the same event. It's the same exact event. For Jesus to ask for God to glorify him is Jesus asking for the cross. He's asking for the cross right here. This lowering and this lifting, it's all happening at the same time. It's horrid, this insulting cross. It meant no less than Jesus' total glorification. So that's why this prayer is such a fantastic expression of Jesus' willingness not to just tackle the cross, but to tackle it with joy. It's hard for us to imagine. And joy doesn't always mean smiling. We know that. But there was a resounding, solid joy. Hebrews 12, we see this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, good news, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what I love about this passage is that Jesus is asking for the cross, and therefore he's asking to be demolished demolished and clothed with glory all at the same time at his cost to your benefit it's good stuff and now to be even better he's praying for us he's praying for us considering you valuing you as we enter the mission this is his intercession even for us today right now this very day 2017 as we sit here jesus you'll find him at the right hand of the father interceding for you that's humbling. Romans 8. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the business he's in right now. This is what Jesus wants you to know about him. You want to know what Jesus wants to show you today? Is that he's praying for you. He's praying for you that you're loyal and you're faithful as you're on his mission, the way that he was. Now, if mission is more mechanical than it is worshipful, that means you're trying to secure something for yourself in the process. That's why it's gone mechanical for you. So if we were to look into the whole Knoxville metro area and consider the relationships you have right now, 
Consider the settings that God has put you in and the opportunities that abound around you. How do you become a good missionary? How do you do it? Step one, and I believe the most important step, a deep residing satisfaction and joy in the story of what God has done for you. That's first and foremost. You could try to be a missionary without that. Good luck. But to have a heart that is convinced that God is truly graceful and great and huge and he's done this for us, that's how you make missionaries. So listen, if we were just to drive some application into this before we get out of this sermon, if you were to struggle, if you're one of the ones that finds yourself on the side of the spectrum that you struggle getting dirt on you, you don't want to do it. It's too much work. You have an idol problem, and the idol is comfort. It's just comfort. It, it, Luke, it's just too much work to get to know people. I mean, it might, it might take several months or years, and then they might just keep rejecting you. How many times? I mean, it's just too much work for the return. So I just need to retreat and get my peace and get my comfort by not doing anything. Now, here's what the gospel says to that. It says you're free from the need to soothe yourself with comfort through retreat and apostasy, that you could actually be in the midst of the battle preaching the gospel to everyone that walks by you and never seeing anyone say, yes, I like what you're saying. You're free to do that and be totally comfortable. Now listen, you could totally fail at this. You could never preach the gospel again. You could walk right out the door and never ever declare the word of God. It doesn't mean you're not a missionary if you do that. It just means you're a bad one, by the way. But you can do it and be a bad missionary for the rest of your life, and it does not change the way God sees you. His ranking of you, his approval rating does not drop. That's cool. That's grace right there. We're free to be total failures, but we're also free to be good at this. We're also free to be good missionaries that enjoy Jesus and are faithful. We're free for that as well. So what do we do? We ask the Holy Spirit to remind us of how comfortable the gospel is. God, remind me, because I forget. Remind me of the peace and the comfort that is to be found in your work for me, because I keep trying to siphon it off of the world, and it's got me silent. It's got me to where I'm not telling anybody anything. I'm not investigating. I don't even know what makes people tick, because it's just too much work. I just don't want to work that hard. This is what it means to work out some salvation problems, too, by the way. Whenever you read that passage, this is a piece of what that means. Maybe you find yourself on the opposite end of the scale, the spectrum, and you struggle to stand apart from society. You just nod your head. It gives you stupid theology. You nod your head like it's real interesting, like you're interested, and you're not interested. It's stupid. We all know it's stupid, right? But you don't want them to feel like they're outside looking in. You want them to feel comfortable. You say things that you don't really mean, or you're just totally silent. It's a different idol, but it's an idol nonetheless. It's just one of approval. You're looking for them to give you the rubber stamp that says you're okay. Not like all those other dirty Christians. You're okay. It's an approval thing we're looking for. Now here is the, the good news. You're free to fail at this. Totally free. God doesn't bump you down on the ladder. Right? You don't, you don't get sent to junior varsity in his eyes for failing here. But the good news is that you're free to do well here. You're free. You're free to just enjoy the identity and the approval that you have as God looks at you and he sees his son. <laughs> what on earth is culture going to add to that? So then we ask the Lord again, Spirit, remind me of how attractive that identity is. I guess I forget. 
I forget, I get amnesia, and I forget how beautiful it is to be seen by the eyes of God, to be beautiful and pure, with no sin attached, to have lived the perfect life, just as Jesus. I have the cloak, as Luther said, the cloak of Jesus on me when God sees me. Look, remind me of how good that is, because I just forget, and I just keep trying to get the world to like me a bunch. We gotta work out our salvation. Missionary problems, they're heart problems. They're heart problems, first and foremost. And the good news for you and me today is Jesus loves us and he's praying for us at this topic right now. Right now, this is what he's praying for. You know, we see Jesus in this passage. Go ahead and stand with me. We see Jesus in this passage longing to return to his father and longing for you to see the glory he had when he was still with his father. This means that when he tackled the cross with joy, he also did so to finally get the wedding going. He had a bride he was looking forward to collecting, which is his church. He's excited about his church, right? Now this is cool, because consider what the gospel said. I mean, I've done a couple weddings here recently. In fact, we got two, do we have two married couples in here now? We have, hey, raise your hand, woo! Nathan and Amanda, they're married. Are the Wismans in here? They're not here. Long honeymoon, go, go for it while you can, right? <laughs> But I love doing what, one of my favorite parts in the wedding is at the very beginning, before you even tell everybody to sit down. It's the phrase, who gives this woman over to be married? Never will you catch a father at his shakiest moments than right then. They act so tough in the rehearsal, but I know that wedding's gonna be, their eyes are all red, they don't even know, they're, they're probably gonna mess their lines up and all they have to do is say, me and, me and my wife or something like that. But they just, they're kind of, they just melt right there. The gospel says, the gospel says, who gives these sinners over to this groom? And God the Father says, I do. I do. Jesus, with the joy set before him, tackles the cross for you and for me. It's beautiful, isn't it? Listen, some of you in here, you're very far from Jesus. And you might have caught this little random statement in here, or so it seems random, where Jesus says he won't be praying for the lost world, just the ones that God has sent to him. Did you catch that in this? It doesn't mean that he doesn't love the world. It says that he loves the world, and that's why he sends his son. It says that in John 3. But the world can only be prayed for to the amount that it abandons it and comes into an otherworldly place with a new king and a new kingdom. To just pray for the world would be odd. The only reason anyone would pray for a rebellious chunk of creation is so that it abandons that life and comes over into a totally new existence. And that's my prayer for you today when we pray is that you would abandon the world's values, you would abandon the world's cares, you would abandon all the luxuries that you think the world is giving you, and you would find a new hero. You would be joined in a new family tree. And then for those of us who are saved, those of us who are in Christ, let me remind you, you have a lineage that reaches all the way back to Jesus' lips. That's pretty cool. All the way back to his lips, and one day, when God appears again in the second advent, we are going to see Jesus as he is. We're going to see him with all the glory that he enjoyed before he even entered the mission of God. But until then, we have a mission. Until then, we have a mission. We have nothing to lose but ourselves. We have nothing to lose but ourselves. Yeah, people are going to reject you, but it's not going to dent who you are. And yeah, it's going to be a lot of work, but you're not going to find comfort in retreating. You're not going to find it there. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for so many years ago reading it 
and having you turn my heart from stone into flesh, as I read these words and I knew that I knew that I knew that I must die to self today, for I have a new hero, I have a new mission, I have a new everything. You changed my heart. And that's what I pray that you do in this house today. Not just in this house, but in your houses all over the city. That in churches all over, you were ripping people from spiritual orphanages. They wander the earth with no family, with no purpose, with no real life, and you draw them into a better place where a real hero and a real groom smiles over us. You are so good, Lord. And I pray for salvation in your church today. And then, Father, for the rest of us who love you and we can reminisce over that beautiful story of what you've done, Lord, remind our hearts of how sweet it is. Father, even today, remind me of how sweet, how fun your story is to tell. Where I can just... See, remember that time. I was such a mess. But remember that time? I didn't even know what I was walking into. And out of nowhere, you came. Out of nowhere, you came. And you changed me. And I'm thankful. Lord, that with your spirit, you would remind us of how beautiful and incredible and fantastic that story is that we would be missionaries to this city, not missionaries because we have all the latest trends and we know all the coolest tools and we've been to all the best classes, but we are missionaries first and foremost because we are infatuated and fascinated with who you are. Even with no style points, we love to tell your story. You are so good and thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for interceding. Thank you for praying for us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.